Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female servants and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's nice to be back here in person, uh, and it's great to be able to uh, spend time with you worshipping God uh, and encourage, being encouraged by his word. So let's uh, pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to reflect now on uh, those words that we've just read and uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, some of those things are hard for us to understand and we just ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding by your Holy Spirit so that we would know you and understand uh, you and trust you and love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Lord, we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I want you to think about a question uh, before we begin looking at this passage. And the question is, uh, what do you live for? Uh, what occupies your purpose and meaning? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, what occupies your mind through the day? Uh, when you wake up in the middle of the night, what comes to you, first of all? Uh, what are you striving to achieve? Just take a moment. I just want to give you a moment. Uh, close your eyes and just think about what it is that you are striving for. What's your answer to those questions? I don't know what uh, the answer was that you came up with, 
uh, and maybe that's something you want to go think away, think about, go away and think about some more. But those questions, I think, are some of the most important questions that we can face or ask, uh, and yet they're really some of the kinds of questions that we don't always really spend that much time thinking about. Uh, we tend to just end up pursuing things by default, by accident maybe, uh, rather than thinking carefully and planning out what it is that we're going to do. We don't really consider carefully what is really important or what is really worthwhile. Uh, and in this chapter of Ecclesiastes, that's really what we're thinking about. What, what, is, what is it that we're living for? Uh, what gets us up in the morning? What is important? What is worthwhile? God wants uh, to make us stop in this chapter and think about those questions. Well, in this uh, chapter in coming to answer those questions, the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the person who's speaking in Ecclesiastes, does a number of experiments. He's like a scientist of life. Uh, he does a number of experiments. Uh, he says in verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Uh, what he does is investigate life. Uh, he's a philosopher. He's looking around at the world and he's trying to make sense uh, of the world that he sees. And he does these three experiments. The first experiment is the one that we just read. In that, he experiments with pleasure. Uh, he denies himself nothing that his heart, that his heart desires. He, he uh, does everything that he could possibly ever want to do. Uh, he indulges in, uh, in laughter and humour. He thinks, well, maybe that is a great thing to do, to just spend my life uh, you know, watching comedy. Uh, he tried alcohol. He embraced, he says, folly. That is, I, I think what he means by that is that he, gets, he drinks enough to get drunk, uh, but not enough you know, that he descends into a, a ruined life, alcoholism. You know, he drinks just enough uh, to lose control, uh, to lose the worries, and to just be happy. Then he starts kind of the ultimate home renovation project. Uh, he builds houses, he builds vineyards, he builds gardens, he builds parks, he builds a fruit grove. He acquires servants. You know, after building all those things, he thinks, gosh, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life doing all that work myself. I better find somebody to do it, to do it for me. So he employs a lot of people to do his work and then he sits back to enjoy all that he's built and acquired. Uh, he becomes filthy rich. He acquires herds and flocks. He gets even his own uh, personal musicians, his own kind of orchestra to come and play music for him whenever he wants. Forget the radio, forget Spotify or whatever it is. He gets his own personal uh, music group. He gets enough women that he can have as much sex as he could possibly want. Whatever he wants, that's what he gets, that's what he experiments with. It needs to be said that uh, in doing all these things, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is not giving us an example to follow. What he's doing instead is saying to us, imagine a life with no boundaries in the pursuit of pleasure. Imagine that kind of life. And he says, that is the kind of life that I lived. And to save you the effort of doing that yourself, let me tell you what I found. What's his conclusion? He says, it's all meaningless. 
Sure, he says he had fun. Uh, He says in verse 10 that he had fun. He says, I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour. And this was the reward for all my toil. He enjoyed it. But in the end, he says, it's like chasing after the wind. Uh, That is, you know, chasing after the wind is not a very successful pursuit. You know, you run after it, you go one way, uh, then you go the other way, uh, it swirls around, you try and close your hands on the wind, and you probably find that you don't really get much in return. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, God says to us, that's what it's like living for, for pleasure. You run one way, you run the other way, you try and close your hands on it, and there's nothing there. It's a bit like eating a tub of ice cream. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've, actually, I've never done that. But I've eaten more, than, more ice cream than I really should. And it's great at the time, isn't it? Uh, but afterwards, that feeling, that pleasure goes, doesn't it? And to be honest, most often you're left feeling a bit seedy, to be honest, probably more than that. And the writer says that's what running after pleasure is like. Sure, at the time, it's great, maybe. But afterwards, the feeling goes and you're left wanting more and you can't find it. And maybe you're left afterwards feeling a bit empty. I'll never forget uh, a friend of mine uh, who, before he was a Christian, was a mad keen kite surfer. He was, he was just full on. He had a panel van and the back of his panel van was filled with all kinds of boards for different conditions and all kinds of kites for different conditions and he'd just basically drive around looking for the best conditions to go kite surfing uh, and that was his, that was his life. Uh, he'd, he'd go out, he'd have lots of fun but then he'd come back and he'd be missing it. The, the, the fun that he was having while he was out there would disappear and then he'd spend the next few days waiting for the perfect conditions to be able to go out again. He literally, as he said to me once, literally spent his life chasing the wind. And the teacher says, in the end, that doesn't cut it. It doesn't work. As a reason to live, as a reason to get up in the morning, living for pleasure doesn't work. It's not enough. And although I suspect that none of us have gone to the same limits that this guy uh, in this part of the Bible went to. We, none of us have gone to the same limits in doing that kind of experiment. I suspect that many of us have lived out that experiment in, a, in lesser ways. Uh, all of us, to some degree, have gone searching after pleasure as a kind of an end of life, as a kind of a purpose for our life. Now, what is it that uh, most of us in Tassie are striving for? I reckon that most of us are probably striving for the good life, aren't we? The fun life, the laid-back life, uh, the life with a bit of land, uh, with a short drive to work, easy access to good facilities, long weekends, holidays on the coast. Uh, Isn't that what many of us kind of get up for or wait for or hang out through the year for? I was reading a book uh, recently and one of the observations that that book made, uh, which really struck me, was that in our society, uh, 
uh, it is our inner psychological world. It is our, the world in our mind which is the most important to us. Now, that is the thing that drives us. That is, the most important, to say it another way, the most important question for us really in life is, how do I feel? Am I happy? It's that inner experience that actually motivates and drives so much of what we do. Uh, We spend so much of our time, I think, asking that question, am I happy or am I not happy? Is this job making me happy or is this job making me miserable? Uh, Is this relationship making me happy? Is it making me miserable? Is this holiday making me happy? Is this house making me happy? Is this food making me happy? Are my children making me happy? Uh, And if those things are not making us happy, then we reorder our lives to try and make sure that they do. We chase after pleasure. But how has that kind of pursuit worked, worked out for you? you know, what kind of success have you had in reordering your life to try and make it make yourself happy? How has continually asking that question, hour after hour, day after day, am I happy? How has that worked for you? Has that made you happier? I suspect that for most of us it's actually made us more miserable. My guess is that like the teacher, you've discovered that it's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. You run that way, you run that way, you try and grab it and it disappears. The teacher says it's a chasing after the wind. That's the first experiment. He tries chasing for pleasure and it doesn't work. It's not a reason to live. It's not a reason to get up in the morning. Next, he experiments with wisdom or I suppose what you might call learning. Uh, Let's read from that part. We'll read a little bit more of that chapter from uh, Ecclesiastes 2 from verse 12. He says there, so he's just tested pleasure, then he says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So the teacher experiments, as I said, with wisdom and great learning. He goes to university, if you like. He goes to the university of his day. Uh, He gets the best education that there is. Uh, Maybe he gets a place at Oxford or Cambridge or Yale or something like that. Uh, He gets an undergraduate degree, he gets a master's, maybe he gets a doctorate. He might even become a teacher, he becomes a teacher of other people. Uh, He writes books, he becomes the expert. He becomes the person uh, that they get on the ABC or SBS or the news. He's the person that they get on, he's the expert that they get on to talk about life. 
Well, what does he find when he's done all that study? He's done all that work. Well, he finds, no, surprise, no surprises really, he finds that being wise is better than being a fool. That's positive. Uh, he says being foolish is like walking around at night time with your eyes closed or walking around at night time without a torch. It's like going through your life with your eyes closed. Don't try this. Uh, this is not a suggestion. But imagine leaving here after church and trying to drive all the way home with your eyes closed. How far would you get? Part of me thinks, I, just, I would wonder how far I would actually get. <laughs> Wouldn't mind trying that. Maybe you should wait till I've gone before you drive home today. But we, we're not going to get anywhere, are we? We don't get anywhere when we try and move through life with our eyes closed. The writer says that's what it's like to be a fool. He says, of course, you're better off being wise than being a fool. And yet, he says, being wise still doesn't change the ultimate outcome of life. He says in verse 14, the same fate overtakes them both. Both die and both will be forgotten. So maybe you're not the person who has pursued pleasure. Maybe you're, uh, that's not you. But maybe you are the person who's, who's pursued, tried to pursue the wise life. Maybe that's how you've kind of found meaning in life. Maybe that's what gets you up at the beginning of the day. To, through learning and study, try and work out the best way to live. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you read all the classics of English literature, Jane Austen uh, and uh, Bronte and Melville. Maybe you read all the, all the Greek classics, like Homer and Plato and, uh, and Aristotle. Uh, you watch movies. But you don't watch those frothy romantic comedies or action movies. You watch those deep movies, you know, those ones that say something about life. You always know a deep movie because you come away from it feeling really depressed. Uh, maybe those are the kinds of movies that you watch to try and think about life and to understand what life is about. Maybe you study philosophy. Uh, Nietzsche and Simone de Beauvoir and Albert Camus or people like that. Maybe you go on long walks like the philosophers and you think about life. Maybe you watch YouTube clips. Maybe it's not philosophy. Maybe it's science. You, you try and understand the origins of the world. You watch all these clever scientists and physicists who can explain how the world came into being and you watch biologists who can explain why we are the way that we are. But the question is, really, when you're dead in the grave, how will those things be helpful? How will you be in a better place than the person who went through their life, never having read a book after they left school? Never having watched any YouTube videos on how the world works? Will you be in a better position? When you're dead and when you're standing before the judgment seat of God, will you be in a better position than the person who thinks that Homer is a character in The Simpsons? You know, or that Plato is a kid's toy. But maybe the kind of learning and, and, uh, and wisdom that you pursue is not that kind of hoity-toity academic stuff. You're not into that. You're into more practical wisdom. Uh, and so you spent your life uh, trying to understand economics and finance 
Uh, you've spent your life uh, following the stock market, trying to work out the best business strategy. You've got an investment portfolio. You've got property. Uh, or maybe you're aiming at a kind of a lower level. Uh, you don't trust the stock market. You think, I can still be wise in the way that I live. Uh, your area of research, your area of keen study, is the next purchase. You spend hours and days and months searching and reading and studying up on the best vacuum cleaner. You read the reviews, the good reviews, the bad reviews. You read one site, then you read another site. You go to the consumer advocacy sites. You go to the Choice in Australia. You go to the one in the UK. You live the life of wise purchases. Every purchase you've made is well-researched. You've got the best stuff in your house. You've never been sucked into a bad purchase. And the writer says, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know what, there's, there's wisdom in that. You will definitely have a better time vacuuming your house than the fool. But at the end of the day, when you lie in the grave, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, will your condition be any better? I think it's safe to say that as you stand before the judgment seat of God as you, or as you lie in the grave, you will not think to yourself, boy, I'm glad I got the Dyson. <laughs> you won't be thinking to yourself, wow, I'm glad I invested in Bitcoin at the bottom of the market. I'm glad I invested in property. You know, rather than shares and, and lost everything. Sure, some of those things, some of that learning, some of that wisdom makes life better now. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that, but ultimately, they're useless. They don't get us anywhere. Pleasure is fleeting and learning doesn't get us anywhere much beyond today. So finally, the writer of Ecclesiastes experiments with work. He tries to find meaning, last of all, and significance in his work. So let's read that last section there from verse 17. He says, So I hated life. Well, that's probably not surprising. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So the teacher reflects on the point of all the work that he's done. He's tried pleasure, he tries wisdom and learning, now he's trying work, and he reflects on all that he's done, and as he reflects on it more and more, he comes to realise... That everything that he's built for, that everything that he's built and lived for won't last. Uh, he's built a business 
And he realizes that when he dies, he's just going to pass it on to some idiot to destroy everything that he's built up. I was reading another book recently called Morality. It's by the former chief rabbi of the UK, Jonathan Sachs. And he writes in that book about a conversation that he had with a guy called Arnold, Arnold Weinstock. And Arnold Weinstock was a great British businessman uh, who over nearly 40 years took the General Electric Company, uh, which you might have heard of, he took the turnover of that company from uh, £100 million to £11 billion uh, over, over 40 years. And Jonathan Sachs writes this about a meeting that he had with Arnold Weinstock. He says, Now, though, in his late 70s and approaching death, he was a pale shadow of his former self. What he told me was this. I gave my life to building the business. I paid myself a reasonable salary, but a modest one. My successor pays himself ten times as much, and he has driven everything I have built to ruin. Sachs continues, as I later discovered, this was true. And everyone in the business world knew it. His successor had made a series of irresponsible acquisitions, completely ignoring the principles that had led the organisations to greatness for four consecutive decades and leaning it instead to catastrophic loss and ruin. This, his successor had completely destroyed the company that he built up over 40, uh, over 40 years. No wonder he was a wreck. A shadow of his former self. Everything that he'd lived for had been destroyed. But that is true for us as well. Even if we've not taken a company over 40 decades to 11 billion pounds per annum. It's true of our work. The things that you do in your job, they won't last. The things that you're working on today or this week or this year, they won't last. They'll break or they'll be forgotten or they'll... They'll fail. And that's true not just of our work, it's true of our hobbies as well. It's true of your house, it's true of the car maybe that you're, uh, that you're rebuilding or the caravan or whatever that you're redoing. And it's true of your garden. It's worth saying too that it's even more true of the thing which is even more fundamental maybe to our lives today than any of those things and that is building our identity. Many people in our world today don't build concrete things, but they build who they are. That is the thing that they live and work and strive to do. They strive to build who they are or who they're perceived to be by everyone around them. Now, maybe that's you. Maybe you build an image on social media or in the way that you dress or in the way that you relate to people. Maybe you build it through your education or through your career. That is the most important thing that you want to strive for. Who am I? But if a business and if buildings can burn down and fail and come to nothing after we're dead, then how much more does our identity fail and disappear and come to nothing? We spend our whole lives inventing who we are only for it to disappear the moment that we die. What does the teacher in Ecclesiastes conclude? He says, this too is meaningless. What do people gain from all their anxious striving and toil 
Their days are filled with work. Their nights, at nights, their minds can't get a break. What's it all for? Maybe that's you. Maybe your life is filled, the days are filled with work and the nights are filled with thinking about work. What's it all for? The teacher says it's a chasing after the wind. It doesn't last. Well, three experiments. Pleasure, wisdom, work and all with the same outcome. It's pretty depressing. And yet at the same time, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, it's pretty fair. It's true, those things don't last. But what do we do with all that? Well, I want to think about that briefly with you before we finish. What do we do with that? Well, I think there are two wrong responses that we can make to this reality of life that the teacher highlights. The first wrong response that we can make is to bury your head in the sand. The first response that we, wrong response is to, is to bury your head in the sand and to think, well, the teacher is not right. Actually, everything that I do will last forever. It is really meaningful. You know, I create the meaning. That's the first wrong response. It's wrong because it's just not true. It's stupid. Of course, what the teacher is saying is right. It all disappears. It all comes to nothing. Uh, The second wrong response uh, is to think that all of life is genuinely pointless and miserable. Philosophically, that's called nihilism. It means that life is just is, is empty. And that is a distressing and dangerous place to live uh, with the realisation uh, that life is empty and meaningless. Uh, that's the position that we can end up in too if we, if we bury our head in the sands. Uh, we can one day come to the realisation that all that we've tried to create is empty and then we end up in the situation where we suddenly realise that's not true. And that is a dangerous place to be as well because we have nothing left to live for. But maybe you fall into one of those two categories. Maybe you, you just think, no, it is meaningful. Uh, it is worth living for. All these things are worth living for. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the other person and actually you're on the edge. You're on the precipice. You're on the edge of the cliff and you think, no, there's, there's no meaning left in my life anymore. Well, in the last few verses of this chapter, the teacher explains a better way. Uh, He says in verse 24, he says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. So the, the teacher says the answer to life, to this mystery of life, is proper perspective. The things of life are neither ultimately fulfilling, nor are they ultimately meaningless. Again and again in this chapter, the teacher says, I found joy. He found joy in the pleasures of life. He found uh, advantage and wisdom over foolishness. Uh, He found joy in his work. But the writer says we ought to receive those joys as gifts from God rather than making them our purpose for living in and of themselves. 
when those joys and those pleasures and those goals become the main game, they become meaningless and pointless. They become empty. They become wearisome. The writer says instead of that, what we need to do is to pursue God. We need to pursue God instead of pleasure, pursue God instead of wisdom and learning, pursue God instead of meaning in our work. We need to pursue God and receive from him the good gifts that come in all those things that we do. So sure, plant a garden. Build a house. Enjoy wine and food in the way that God has made us to enjoy those things. But don't make them the reason for getting up in the morning. And when they don't come and when life is frustrating, don't be surprised. When they do come, thank God. The writer says, in the context of the Bible, we can even enjoy sex. The writer says, the Bible is not anti-sex. God made it, but not as an end in itself. We see what happens in the world, don't we, when people pursue sex as an end in itself. In the Bible's terms, though, we pursue it in the way in which God designed us to pursue it in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Study, learn, invest. Work, the teacher says, and enjoy the satisfaction and the pleasure that comes from those things. And accept the hard times. But don't chase after all those things. Don't make them the ultimate goal. Don't make them your reason for living. Don't make them the focus of your attention. Because they're just passing away. God isn't passing away, but they will. Chasing them is like chasing after the wind. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to see the reality of the world so that we can see and pursue God more clearly. Pursue God, he says. Trust in God. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Find your treasure and joy in him and enjoy the daily pleasures that God sends as you do that. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you've made a good world for us to enjoy. A world of uh, sunshine and rain, of food, uh, a world of laughter, uh, a world of many delights and things uh, that you've given us to enjoy. Uh, But Lord, we also want to acknowledge that often we turn those good gifts uh, into ultimate things. Uh, We pursue them rather than pursuing you. Uh, Lord, uh, we try and find our purpose and our meaning in them. We live for those things. We turn them into idols. Uh, And Lord, uh, as idols always do, they fail to satisfy us. They let us down. Uh, And they leave us, Lord, broken and confused and tired. Uh, And Lord, as we look around our world, we see that. Lord, we see it in our own hearts, but we also see it in the world around us as people pursue those things and feel empty. Uh, and so, Lord, we, we want to confess that, but we want to ask too that 
uh, you would help us and help the world around us to know the true answer uh, to the meaninglessness of those things. Lord, we pray that you would help us to pursue you, uh, to, to run after you, to trust you, and then, Lord, to receive those good gifts that come from your hand. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for everything that comes to us day by day. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all the gifts that you've given to us this morning and all the good gifts that you'll give to us this afternoon and this week. Lord, teach us to receive those with joy uh, and teach us to work through the hard times as well when those things don't come and to trust you in that. And Lord, we pray that for our world also. Uh, Lord, we pray for a world that is spiralling more and more into um, uh, sadness and anxiety. Lord, we pray that you would help us to speak a word in season, uh, to show people the meaninglessness of life without you, uh, but to show the wonder and the joy and the privilege and the pleasure uh, of knowing you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray it in his name. Amen.